Well, if you have a Bible with you this morning, I do want to invite you to open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We are beginning our summer series this morning. We're going to be spending the next eight weeks or so in chapters 12 to 14 of 1 Corinthians. We took a break in our 1 Corinthians series about a year and a half ago. We made it as far as chapter 11. We kind of pushed pause on that, did some other stuff. We're returning to 1 Corinthians now, looking at chapters 12 to 14 through the summer months in a series that we're calling Spirit and Church. And these chapters are largely taken up with a discussion of spiritual gifts. Now, even just hearing that probably gives some of you a bit of a nervous twitch, right? Just kind of like, uh-oh, what are we going to be doing as we talk about spiritual gifts? I think there's good reason for that. Actually, lots of good reasons why you might feel that way. Spiritual gifts, which are supposed to be about the unity of the church, the fact that the church is a body made up of many different parts that are supposed to all function together. It's supposed to be about those things, but very often the discussion of spiritual gifts ends up being sort of a dividing line. There are lots of denominations that are divided along the lines of their views or their practices of spiritual gifts. Gifts, And even apart from the denominations, just individual churches have sometimes been split or fractured over the practice or non-practice of spiritual gifts among them. And I would just say that this is not a reason to avoid a discussion about spiritual gifts, but in fact, this is a reason to do what we are doing today, to begin to develop a biblical understanding of spiritual gifts and their function within the life of the church. So I want to get into this by reading for you verses 1 to 11 of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and I am going to invite you to stand for the reading of God's word this morning. And this is what the Lord says to us. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols. However, you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord, and there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. You can be seated. So chapter 12 begins by saying, now concerning spiritual gifts. That little phrase, now concerning, is something we've encountered in the book of 1 Corinthians before. Chapter 7 begins by saying, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with 
a woman. Now, it seems kind of odd to just sort of leave that one in particular, sort of hanging out there with not a lot of comment to it, at least without the context. If you want to know what was going on in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, you're going to have to go back and search for that message and listen to it. I'm just highlighting the fact that when we encounter that phrase, now concerning in 1 Corinthians, it indicates that Paul is addressing a question that the Christians in Corinth had been asking, one that they had written him about. We meet it a few times. So in chapter 7, verse 25, it says, now concerning the betrothed. The Corinthians had questions about how the betrothed or the engaged were supposed to handle their sexual desires or their relationships. Chapter 8 begins with, now concerning food offered to idols. This was a hot button issue in the city of Corinth. Could you in good conscience, as a Christian, partake in a meal where the food had been offered to an idol? And now in chapter 12, Paul begins, now concerning spiritual gifts. In other words, look, you've written me about this. You have questions about this. Now I'm going to turn my attention and try to answer those things. Proper place of spiritual gifts was one of the questions the Corinthians had, and it might be one of the questions you have. You probably have your own questions about spiritual gifts. Those questions might be basic. Does everyone have a spiritual gift? Is it possible to have more than one spiritual gift? How do I discover what my spiritual gift or my spiritual gifts are? Some of your questions might be more complex. Are all of the spiritual gifts that are mentioned here still operative today? Do people still have the gift of miracles or healing, for instance? Or were those sorts of gifts just for the apostolic age as a way to sort of validate the message of the gospel? Is the gift of tongues a a way of speaking a language that you did not know? Or is it a private prayer language? Would the gift of prophecy mean that what a person says when they are prophesying is on par with Scripture? Is there a sort of two-tiered or two-staged Christianity? One set of spiritual gifts that you might receive upon conversion and another one that comes from some type of second blessing or deeper encounter with the Holy Spirit. These are all common questions about spiritual gifts and they have led to lots of disagreements, lots of divisions. Now, it's actually a bit ironic, given that this section is really about church unity. And that's sandwiched in between chapters 12 and chapter 14, which are largely taken up with discussions of spiritual gifts, is chapter 13. The chapter we often refer to as the love chapter. So my hope as we embark on this series, as we begin it today, is that this series will contribute to our unity and our growth as a church. I don't know what specific questions you might have as you come into it, but we're going to begin today by answering four basic questions about spiritual gifts. This is kind of a broad overview. And the first question is the most basic of all. What are spiritual gifts? Now, maybe we should just begin with a very simple observation that they are spiritual gifts. I know I kind of got you going on that one, right? But what I mean is they're spiritual in the sense that they're not natural talents or abilities. Those things are also gifts from God and God may sort of baptize them for his service. But that's not really what's at the heart of a spiritual gift, Spiritual gifts are not always related to personality types. So someone might be 
uh, quiet and introverted, and yet they might possess the gift of teaching. A person who doesn't typically speak up in social situations might have the gift of evangelism and be very effective at it. It's a spiritual gift. By definition, a spiritual gift is a supernatural empowering to do what you could not do in your own strength. Spiritual gifts are also gifts. So I know I'm I'm digging pretty deep here. But what I I want to say about that is that this means that we receive spiritual gifts. We don't earn them. Spiritual gifts are not a reward for years of service or for attaining a certain level of spirituality or holiness. And then you get these gifts. The two words for spiritual gifts in the New Testament, the two Greek words for spiritual gifts are pneumatikos and charismata. Now, pneumatikos derives from the word pneuma, spirit, or wind, or breath. So a pneumatic tool is something that functions on the power of wind or air. Charismata comes from the the, the root charis, which means grace. Grace is something you do not deserve. So these are then spirit-empowered or spirit-breathed grace Gifts given to us. Now, Paul lists several spiritual gifts here in these verses. In verses 8 to 10, I'll I'll read through them for you. He says, For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. So he lists several gifts in this passage, but this is actually not the only place in the New Testament where we find a list of spiritual gifts like this. So later in chapter 12, we read this in verses 27 to 30. Now you are the body of Christ. And individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church. First apostles. Second prophets. Third teachers. Then miracles. Then gifts of healing. Helping. Administrating. And various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? And the answer to those questions is no. In chapter 14, we find another listing of gifts. This one, just really two or three gifts. Actually, if any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or or at the most three and each in turn and let someone interpret. But if there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church, speak to himself and God. Let two or three prophets speak and let others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. There's also a list of spiritual gifts in Romans chapter 12. And there Paul says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given us. Let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, The one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. 
In Ephesians chapter 4, we find another description, or we find Paul's description of how God has ordered the church. And there it says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, building up the body of Christ. And then in 1 Peter chapter 4, we find this list, or this at least description. It says, as each has received a gift... Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Most of the, or most of the gifts according to Peter's designation, fit either into the speaking set of gifts or the serving type of gifts. Now, if you were keeping score, as I read all of those lists, there are some 21 different spiritual gifts mentioned in the New Testament. Prophecy, service, teaching, exhortation, contributing, leading, mercy, word of knowledge, word of wisdom, faith, gifts of healing, miracles, discernment, tongues, interpretation of tongues, apostleship, helping, administration, evangelism, pastoring, shepherding, pastoring, teaching. Now, you can take a look at that list and you can see that there's some overlap between the, the, the gifts. Maybe there's some duplicates there. I mean, it's possible that maybe leading and administrating are the same gift. We're not really told. But what's interesting to me is that none of the four or none of the lists contain all of the gifts. And for that, this is part of the reason that I think it's best to see the gifts or the list of gifts as representative, but not necessarily exhaustive. Right? So the Corinthians were not told about the gift of mercy, for instance. That did not mean that there was no one in the church in Corinth who possessed the gift of mercy. The gifts mentioned represent the kinds of spiritual gifts that God gives. But it's possible that there is some variation of a gift that is not mentioned in one of the lists. Now, I would suggest caution with that. I remember one prominent charismatic leader saying that he had the gift of leg lengthening. Not exactly sure what to, to make of that. You'd think he'd be quite busy and you'd think that would be sort of easily verifiable or not verifiable, right? You can either lengthen someone's leg or you can't. But, but is it possible that there's a spiritual gift related to music or to some other form of artistry connected to worship? We know from the Old Testament that God's spirit did empower individuals for specific tasks. He gifted them in a specific way. So in Exodus 31, we read this. The Lord said to Moses, see, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Oholiab, the son of Ahizamach, of the tribe of Dan. And I have been given to all men, able, all able men, ability that they may make all that I have commanded you. So were those spiritual gifts? Well, kind of, sort of. God's spirit empowered these individuals for specific tasks and gave them a particular gifting. So what are spiritual gifts? They are supernatural empowerings by God. 
second question that I think is worth exploring is who gives them? Now, that one almost seems too simple to ask, right? I mean, if we were giving the Sunday school answer, we would say, well, God gives them. Or if we were being more specific, we might say the Holy Spirit gives these gifts. But I I think there's actually more to it than that. So let me briefly highlight two ideas related to the truth that God gives spiritual gifts. And the first one is that the diversity of the gifts reflects the unity of God. What on earth does that mean? Well, listen again to verses 4 to 6. It says, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Now, you might notice a bit of a Trinitarian formula in those verses. Variety of gifts, same spirit. Varieties of service, same Lord. Varieties of activities, same God. And what you find through this passage and through all of the passages that I read for you is that there is a repeated emphasis that though the spiritual gifts are varied and different, they all have their origin in the same source, this one God. And you can see that in our passage Verse 8 says that these gifts are given according to the same spirit. Verse 9 says they're given by the same spirit and by the one spirit. And then verse 11 says they're given by one and the same spirit. So this one spirit, this unified God, gives a variety of gifts to his church. And I think understanding that frees us from the dual dangers of elitism And defeatism. Now, elitism was a problem in the church in Corinth. And it continues to be a problem that plagues plagues churches today. I've got this gift. It's a really special gift. You don't have it. And so tongues and prophecy and the so-called sign gifts that are mentioned here were sort of seen as, you know, this sort of places you a cut above the regular Christians, right? There's this kind of elitist feel to it. I've got that gift. That was a problem then, it's a problem now. But defeatism is also a problem that can plague a church. And we'll see this in greater detail in next week's passage. But this was a problem in Corinth. It remains a problem today. You know what? I don't have that gift. My gift is administration or mercy. It's certainly not as prominent. Anyone can do what I can do. What's the point of serving? But when we understand that God gives these gifts... And that the diversity of the gifts reflects the unity of the giver. It means we're not proud about the gifts that we have. It means that we're not despondent about the gifts that we don't have. And this ties in with a second idea about the truth that God gives spiritual gifts. Namely, that God apportions the gifts as he determines. This is one of the major emphases in this chapter. Now, you see it in verse 11, right at the end of our passage. All these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. You see it again later in the chapter in verse 18, where it says, but as it is, God arranged the members in the body and each one of them as he chose. And then again in verse 25, 
where it just reminds us that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. This is God's design for the church. And he apportions his gifts according to that. As he determines. I think this is a needed reminder in our day. Because we live in a day where people balk at any notion of inequality. Right? Everyone has to get a ribbon or a trophy or it's just not fair. How can it be fair that that person gets a more prominent spiritual gift than the one I have? Or how can it be fair that that person gets multiple spiritual gifts? Well, it's fair because God apportions the gifts as he determines. And according to his determination, not everyone receives the same spiritual gift. Not everyone receives the same number of spiritual gifts. It's not about spiritual gifts, but Jesus tells a parable with parallel implications. It's the parable of the talents. And you may know the story. In that parable, a man goes on a journey. And as he leaves, he entrusts his servants with varying amounts of his assets. To one, he gives 10 talents. To another, he gives five talents. And to a third, he gives just one talent. The man who received the 10 talents immediately goes. He puts his master's money to work and he doubles it. The man who got the five talents does the same thing. He puts his master's money to work. He doubles it. The guy who got just the one talent, he takes it, he buries it in the ground, and it does nothing. And when the master returns, he rewards the first two servants, but he is furious with that third servant. Now, the wrong question to ask when we read that parable is how come the servants were entrusted with different amounts? It doesn't seem fair. The right question to ask is, what did each of the servants do with what they were entrusted with? And I think the same thing is true with spiritual gifts. Rather than playing the comparison game, that person was given way more than I was. Or navel-gazing, I only have this gift. We ought to be asking, what am I doing with what God has entrusted me with? What am I doing with the spiritual gift or gifts that God has given me. Some of you have spiritual gifts. Many of you have spiritual gifts that you are using to help build up the church. Some of you have spiritual gifts that you're not using to build up the church. And this takes us naturally to a third question about spiritual gifts, and that is, who gets them? Well, this question, again, is easily answered from the text. Verses 6, 7, and 11 all give us the same answer. And these, these, this, this is what they say. Verse 6 says, And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. And then verse 7 starts out, To each is given the manifest, manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And then verse 11 says, All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he Wills. So who gets spiritual gifts? Every Christian receives at least one spiritual gift. You have a spiritual gift. Now you might already know what your gift is or you might not. So how do you discover what your spiritual gift is or what your spiritual gifts are? Now if this were the 1980s or 1990s, I would probably tell you to take a spiritual gifts assessment test. That was sort of what was in vogue at the time. 
Maybe you've taken one of those tests somewhere along the way. They're a bit like a personality test or a disc assessment or an Enneagram, right? You, you answer a bunch of questions based on your preferences and your passions. And then at the end, you're given a score. You scored really high in the gift of prophecy or you scored really high in the gift of administration or something like that. Now, I'm not saying there's not some benefit to those types of tests, but I actually think there's a much better way for you to discover what your spiritual gift or your spiritual gifts are. The best way to discover what your spiritual gift is is to be part of a local church and to serve in it. Now, I know that's not the sexiest of answers, but when you're engaged in the life of a local church and you serve in it, your gifts start to manifest themselves. The people around you see them. They affirm those gifts in you. Now, you might think that you have this gift or you have that gift, but the confirmation actually needs to to come from others around you. So you might think that you have the gift of leadership, for instance, But if no one is following you, you're just out for a walk, right? So you need others around you who can say, yes, you know what? I see this gifting in you. Or maybe they call out something that you've never even seen in yourself. So I get to serve on a church planting assessment team a couple times a year. And our task is to assess candidates for their suitability for church planting. It's a pretty extensive process. There's a lot of pre-work they do. And then there's a week of sort of intensive assessment that we do. And what I found most interesting at times is how different a candidate self-assessment can be from the way our assessment actually ends up going and what we see in an individual. So someone might assess themselves as having a prophetic gift or a teaching gift or the gift of evangelism or a leadership gift. But when you drill down a little bit, sometimes you discover what they mean by that is those are things they really like doing. They're not necessarily gifted at them. So lots of guys will say they have a preaching gift or a teaching gift. But when you ask if that's been affirmed by their local church or the church that they serve in, they they might say, well, you know, not really. Or actually, I don't get many opportunities. Now, it might be that their pastor is a pulpit hog and he just is not sharing the pulpit with them. Maybe that's why they don't have the opportunities. But sometimes it's just that the the thing they most want, the gift they want to have or see themselves as having is the thing that tends to get the most attention. And so they desire that gift. And when they answer the questions, those are the, the ways they answer that. And I think the local church is a good place to work those sorts of things out. Having a believer affirm your gift should be part of the equation. So if you don't know what your spiritual gift is, I would encourage you to find a place of service and let others affirm you in ministry. Now, you don't have to have the gift of teaching to serve in kids' ministry, for instance. Now, we need people with the gift of teaching in our kids' ministry, but it might be that your gift is mercy. You've got a heart for those who are on the outside of the circle or those who struggle. And that is desperately needed too. And that can be affirmed in that context. Or maybe you've got the gift of hospitality. 
You've got a keen sense of how it is that people are made to feel welcome. And maybe you start out as a Sunday morning greeter, but as you do that, as you meet new people, you discover those who could really, you know, use an invitation to lunch or dinner. You love doing that kind of thing. You love making those sorts of connections, making people feel like they belong. Now, I'm not meaning for this to sound like a recruitment sermon. But my heart for this message and really for this series is that you develop a greater awareness of your spiritual gifts and that you put them into practice among us. That's how the church is supposed to function. No one person has all the gifts. So I don't possess the gift of mercy, for instance. Right Now some of you are going, oh, shocker. Right, But that's not a gift that I have. But I have seen that gift on display in many of you, many times. And it's a great gift. This is God's gift to the church. He apportions the gifts as he wills. He gave you a gift or gifts and also gave you to the church to be a gift. Fourth question, the final question we're going to look at is what are they for? What is the purpose of spiritual gifts? Now, as strange as it might sound, this is an overlooked question. In the midst of all the discussion about the various gifts, what are we supposed to make of the gifts of healing and tongues and prophecy? What often gets lost is the simple question, why does God give spiritual gifts? And I think there are two main reasons. The first one is that the gifts are given so that God might be glorified. Now, this is the clear implication from the passage I read you in 1 Peter chapter 4 earlier, where it says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. And then it says, in order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We are to use our gifts in order that God may be glorified. And that implication is also found here in this passage. So I haven't really touched on verse 3 yet, and you may wonder about that verse. What does it mean? That verse says, Therefore I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. What exactly does this verse mean? Is it as simple as you can't say the words, Jesus is accursed if God's spirit resides in you? Or that you can't say the words, Jesus is Lord, if you don't have the spirit of God within you? I don't think it's that simple. But I also don't think we should complicate this too much. One of the commentaries I read outlined 12 different possibilities for what could be meant by this verse. So I'm not going to walk through all 12 possibilities with you this morning. It could be that Paul is referring to those caught up in some sort of ecstatic speech or experience. So verse 2 reminds the Corinthians that many of them came from pagan backgrounds. And so Paul says to them, 
you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. So Paul might be referring to something like that. Look, what's going on in Corinth is there's people kind of caught up in this ecstatic sort of experience. They, they start talking and speaking, and as they're talking and the filter is kind of removed, they're saying things like Jesus is accursed. Maybe Paul's referring to something like that. I'm not sure if, if there were actually individuals pronouncing curses or saying Jesus is accursed. I'm not sure if that's actually what Paul is driving at. One New Testament s- scholar summed up his understanding of this passage by saying this. Paul is simply using this fiction of cursing Jesus to emphasize that those who are inspired by the Holy Spirit will speak and act in ways that glorify the lordship of Jesus. I actually think that's on the right track. The idea is that some seem to think that because they had this experience or this gift, that made up for everything. They could sort of live and act and speak however they wanted to. Because, you know, they clearly had the spirit. Now, it's not an exact parallel, and I'm not pronouncing judgment on anyone's spiritual state before God. But there's this lyric sung by Chance the Rapper in a Justin Bieber song. And he's singing in part about his relationship with God. And he says, let's take a trip and get the Vespas or rent a jet ski. I know the spots that got the best weed. We go in next week. I want to honor, want to honor you. Now, full disclosure, I really like that song. Um, But there's just something that seems a little bit off with saying, I want to find the best weed and I want to honor you, God. Right? There's something that just doesn't quite fit in the same way. There's something that just doesn't fit with a person who manifests or seems to manifest a dramatic spiritual gift. And yet that doesn't result in a life that brings glory to God. Paul is telling us not to be ignorant about the fact that manifestations of spiritual activity should be evaluated not on the basis of their dramatic nature, but on the basis of whether or not they bring glory to Jesus. Right? I mean, we know this to be true from what Jesus said. Jesus said, look, there's going to be some who are going to come and say, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons and do all sorts of miracles in your name? And he's going to say, you know what? I I never knew you. Depart from me. So I would just say a spiritual gift that does not result in the glorification of Jesus is not from the Holy Spirit. Spiritual gifts are given so that God might be glorified. A second reason spiritual gifts are given is for the building up of the church. Listen again to verse 7. This is a key verse. He says, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Actually, again, you'll find that emphasis as you read through all of those passages I read earlier about spiritual gifts. See, the Corinthian church was big on experience. This is also true in much of the charismatic movement today. You need to have some kind of ecstatic experience to validate your relationship with God. And spiritual gifts are seen as a way of enhancing your own personal spirituality. The emphasis is really on the corporate nature of these gifts. They're given for the common good. 
Now, even if we were just to go through this list here in this first section of chapter 12, and many of these gifts fit more into the category of what we might think of as the more miraculous types of gifts, right? The, the, the utterance of knowledge, the utterance of wisdom, gifts of healing, miracles, prophecy, tongues, interpretation of tongues. We're going to get into those gifts of tongues and prophecy when we come to chapter 14 in more detail. But I think even just the fact that tongues is mentioned here in conjunction with the interpretation of tongues means that what Paul is talking about in these verses is that which is meant to benefit the church as a whole. Now, I'm not discounting anyone's personal experience when I say this. I'm just wanting to put the emphasis in the right place. And the emphasis in the New Testament when it comes to spiritual gifts is on the way these gifts are given to build up the church or to build up the body of Christ. We'll close with this, but I want you to listen to the opening words from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, because this really defines or sets the parameters for how gifts are to be exercised. Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. See, these gifts are to be exercised for the building up of the church as an exercise of love to one another. Not for personal enhancement. So as we embark on this series, again, my prayer is that this series contributes to our unity, contributes to our growth. So join me in praying to that end. Father, we do want to thank you for the gift of your spirit and the gifts of your spirit that you have given to us and to the church. And Lord, we pray that even as now we're back to gathering together, uh, Lord, I pray you would help us to know what our spiritual gifts are, to know how to use them to serve one another and to express the love we ought to have for one another. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.